Thank you. Thank you so much, Penny. And thank you all for being here. It's a great afternoon, and we've put together a great panel to uh, talk a little bit a month since uh, the midterm elections. There's so much to talk about. We've put together a great panel up here. Um, so I'm glad to be here, glad that you're here. And as you're listening to the forum today, really be thinking about some questions because we will be opening it up to your questions this afternoon. So um, be thinking of things to uh, ask our panelists up here. So I do want to get to know uh, these folks a little bit more up here. Um, so Kim, let's start with you. Um, a brief introduction. Well, I want to start by saying I'm the talented amateur on this panel. <laughs> So I'll be far more generalized than they will. Uh, I'm a 30-year practitioner of law here in the Mahoning Valley. I have done all areas of law. I simply am an observer of the process. I've been very interested in the legal aspects of what's happened since 2016. And so I suppose my focus will be what nationally I think the results of all of this are going to be. Okay. Kristen. Sure, sure. Um, my name is Kristen Olmey. I am the president of the League of Women Voters, Greater Youngstown. I am also the managing member of KO Consulting, LLC. Um, I've been involved in political activism campaign work since 2004. I uh, had the opportunity in 2004 to be on the uh, Carry for Pre Presidential uh, Campaign Committee and have been working on statewide races and, and local races ever since. So um, I also have a Master's of Applied Politics from the University of Akron. So I, I do have a, uh, I'm kind of a data nerd. A lot of what I'll talk about will be referencing turnout figures and, and data to really, you know, tell the story. You could, you could get a political narrative from the news, but sometimes that narrative doesn't match what the data tells us. So um, if you have more data-esque questions to be thinking about, that's sort of what I, I'll be focusing on. Thanks. Tracy. I'm Tracy Winbush. I'm the host of Tracy and Friends, which is a talk news radio program. I've been involved in politics since 1999 when I ran for school board. Um, since then, I have been the treasurer for the Ohio Republican Party, the vice chair of the Mahoning County Republican Party, and I am the curr the, currently the president of the Ohio Black Republicans Association. Um, I stand for good government and common sense. Um, I love my valley. I love my city, and I love this area, and I believe that when we become better educated and get more involved and open up the lines of communication and education to the masses, I think we become better. Okay. Great. Thank you all for being here. So I want to start by talking a little bit about the midterm elections and what happened here in Mahoning County versus the rest of the country. Um, it was really, you know, 2016, a lot of this Democratic stronghold here, a lot of people left the Democratic Party affiliation to vote for President Trump. And I think in the midterms, a lot of uh, people were saying, well, are those people going to go back and vote? Um, for the Democratic statewide ticket and um, those sorts of, of issues and candidates. I guess I'm kind of looking to see what did you see that happened here locally versus what happened on the national level? Kim, do you want to start? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll be happy to start. Kristen, yeah. Um, I think when, you know, for, for, for me personally, 2018 was going to be a validator for 2016 because I had s s sort of theorized that a lot of those crossover voters were not going to come back. If you really looked at the numbers in Ohio and even specific to the Mahoning Valley, we started to trend. Uh, we, we used to be considered what was an, an 80 
roughly an 80-20 county, 70, we'll say 70-30 county. 70% registered Democrats, 20% registered Republicans, 10% registered independents. And if you looked at the data from even starting after the 2008 election, in the 10, 12, 14 cycles, in the Valley, you started to see some of those numbers trickle off for for whatever reason, for a number of reasons that I, I don't really necessarily have the time to delve into today. So in 2016, when, I, when we saw a lot of shifts, specifically in Mahoney County, for the crossovers to Trump, there was a lot on the uh, folks on the Democratic side of the aisle that for me, wanted to lay a lot of blame on the Clinton campaign in and of itself as the only sole reason. I wanted to get to 2018 so we would have the data to see if this was going to be longer than just one cycle. I think what can explain a lot of the Valley is, as a traditional uh, party affiliated because of the strength of labor unions, as we've seen labor union participation uh, become less and less. We've lost some of that Democratic stronghold. We're also older and whiter. There are just demographic shifts that are happening in the Mahoning Valley that are, you know, have a propensity to be better for the Republican Party just in general. And you see, you could see some of the dichotomy of that in the national trends, even places that the Clinton campaign. Uh, essentially lost in 2016, they were able to turn turn that around with targeted models on getting some young people and people back invigorated in the political process. I think some of those are part of the demographic shifts in the valley that are that are cal- calculating some of the changes that we're seeing over time. Um, a lot of other you know sub reasons are affiliated with that. You and. Um, in my opinion, some of those things are just going to be difficult to overcome. Are there strategies that the political parties and voter participation and voter outreach can, can change that? Absolutely. But at the end of the day, I'm a real hard person. I'm a math person. And I just think numbers and stuff, and when you were losing population, that's going to correlate to turnout changes and model changes. So, I mean, sort of in, in my sense, 2018 sort of validated for me where I saw the valley going, um, not the blue stronghold that it, that it once was. Do I think that we could change things back 2020 and beyond? Sure, but I, I think for me, a lot of this was a part of demographics or destiny. Okay. Tracy, do you want to add anything to that? Um, I think things, the valley has changed. Um, the people of America have changed. And in some ways, we've stayed the same. Um, the affinity I saw in 2016 with President Trump, I correlated with um, Congressman Trafficant. If you know who Trafficant was, that the, the, the scrapper that he was, President Trump came off as that same kind of dynamic. Because when you look at the down ticket, it dropped off significantly. So as a Republican, you know, yeah, we want, you know, President Trump won. Um, Trumbull County, we lost in Mahoning County, I think, by two points. But the drop-off to my down ticket was like 30%. We would still get the same 30 35%. So are we really trending blue or red? No. Um, until I see us winning. 2018, when I saw my local races, which was 
my state senate and state rep races win. That shows a significant change. But I think that comes from, I think that comes from voter fatigue. Because you see that people are getting more and more interested in politics, but they're getting more and more turned off by it, which is causing them to think differently about when they're voting. Because I look at the Bocheri and the Ruley race, and that was a lot of voter ID and name recognition, not necessarily party. When I look at the um, Don Manning and the Eric and Garrow race, that was just follow-up. I'd like to see what happens in 2020. Because when I look at what happened to Sherrod Brown, I still lost most of my races in Mahoning and Trumbull County when it came down to my down ticket. So are we, are we going red? I don't think so. I think it has to do, do with the dynamics of change. And then it also has to do with, and we're going to get to this, and I know, but it has to do with voter turnout and where the parties are putting their focus. Because mm-hmm. that will make a difference on who votes and how it, how it trends. Well, at this point, I think it's fair to say that the demographics... And the lack of excitement about state races. Ohio was not nearly as exciting as the races in Florida, in Georgia, and other places. And we're seeing now, apparently there was a lot of excitement in North Carolina because that race appears to have been stolen. But I'd like to remind Ms. Winbush, if President Trump reminded people of trafficking, I'd like to remind you how trafficking ended up. So... I didn't get that note. <laughs> we gonna play nice here. Well, let's do talk about turnout because the midterm election saw record turnout for an off-year election. Um, that typically benefits Democrats. Turnout in Mahoning County hit about 54%, but there was a really big disparity here between uh, urban and rural communities. Um, Tracy, I know this is something that you are interested in looking at. Yeah. What did you see in turnout in this region that really speaks volumes? Um, when you look at the polarization of races, racism and race, um, in the Mahoning Valley, we still have it. And when you look at the suburbs and the rural areas, came out at about 54%. When you look at the inner city, they came out at about 32 So there's a 20% margin, which should not be taking place. But it also has to do with how candidates spend their money and where their, to- their focus and their target is. And we look at this both Republican and Democrat. Democrats didn't spend the money that they have spent in the past, and neither did Republicans. And Republicans usually always spend far less, but, the, but Democrats really did not focus in on getting urban areas out to vote. It was almost as if it was going to be a non-issue. They did the souls to the polls. They minimized um, their, their resources to go in other areas, and they just took the inner cities for granted across the board. Kristen, what, what would you like to add to that? Well, I think that I think that when you're looking at how focus is for similar to what she's saying about targeting, where what are you going to do? What how are you going to target? Where how do you get your voters to turn out? What are the strategies in place? And and I think now again, my perspective is coming from two, 2004 and after. And I think specifically we do have a difficulty with turning voters out here because there is when one political party has had the the luxury of being the political party that was consistently quote unquote 
elected and charged the majority, I, I think you do have a tendency to forget perhaps how to campaign. And what I did see, um, not talking about where actual dollars were spent, but where uh, people resources existed, you didn't see the strategies of a lot of the local campaigns really, really getting out there and knocking and talking to voters. Because So back to my point about, okay, how can you say Ohio's trending red if, if President Obama won in 2008 and won in 2012? Well, when you have a candidate that is able to have the apparatus and the grassroots and reaching people and knocking on doors, that's very different than when you come in 2014 and 18 and the state doesn't have that apparatus, doesn't have the targeted door knocking, doesn't get out there, do the get out the vote efforts at the same level as you do in a presidential year, you're going to struggle to turn out voters. I mean, I see a lot of this disparities between the, uh, between the city and the townships and the villages also with focused turnout. What we know about rural and older voters is they tend to turn out more consistently. So you do not have to spend resources per se, whether it's via door knocking, via targeted marketing, whatever, the same as you have to spend on cities. Because cities have, what, why? We have, they're more diverse, they're younger, they may have transportation issues, their access to getting to the polls isn't as, isn't as simple as somebody in the suburbs who might ha- not have transportation issues. So when you don't focus on a grassroots strategy, what I saw in 2018 really, really specifically was um, what I felt a lack of a grassroots strategy. There was a lot of television spent. There was a lot of money spent on television. There was a lot of money on social media marketing. But I, I did not see you know, the massive amounts of door knocking and strategically working with, you know, interfacing with like-minded groups and hitting, hitting package targets. You know, when, I don't know how much the audience knows about when you're cutting a turf, you know, you have a precinct and it might be eight to 10 streets and you have targeted voters within those eight to 10 streets. And that might make up two or three door walking packages. A pack, one package takes about two, three hours. So when you think about the amount of volume of volunteers you need to get out there and knock on those doors, you really need a, an emphasis on a grassroots strategy. And I saw that very, um, very lacking. And I'll even point further to to make my point. I um, Struthers, which has tw- which has um, twelve precincts, every single precinct in the city of Struthers. Uh, Democratic candidate, Democratic candidates up and down the ballot won every single precinct in the city of Struthers. However, no doors were knocked in the city of Struthers. And when I really started to crunch the precinct data, I easily could come up with probably about 20 to maybe 50 vote swings that could have been changed in those precincts had some doors been knocked. And I know, I know for a fact no doors were knocked in well, those. let me say this. We knocked doors in Struthers, and we didn't win in Struthers. We have to understand, we knock doors in Struthers. And by we, she means the Republican Party. Uh, we, we knock doors in Struthers, and, and we knock doors in Camel, and we still lost. But, and we didn't knock but, any doors but, in those cities. Was, so my point is, is we probably this. left votes get, on the no, table. Let me, let me also say this. When it comes to resources, with, the, with Northside Hospital, the SEIU, and going into 19 and 20, should we lose Lordstown than UAW? Those dollars that usually were spent 
on the grassroots level that were putting people in streets but knocking on the doors in those areas, you're going to see it lack because where they used to pull resources and pay those people to knock on the doors, those doors are not going to be knocked because you don't have those resources undergirding and giving the resources to make it happen. And that's going to be a dynamic that we're going to see trending if we lose our labor force and those unions walk away. Right, which again, kind of makes my point about targeted grassroots strategy. I think there was a, a lack on the part of, from what I saw in the Mahoning Valley, uh, I don't want to get it, make any, mince any words, I do think doors were knocked. I just don't think the volume to, to get turnout margins that were needed were hit. Kim, do you want to add anything? Just the, the energy was not there with regard to the races that were local. It was not the same kind of uh, election as 2016. And so, oh my God, I'm about to admit Tracy was correct. If, the, if we continue to lose economic resources in this community, we're not going to be as interesting on a national level. Ohio is not right now considered to be in play for 2020. We're not, so we're not going to get the money politically. They're not going to invest here to get out the vote, and so Ohio will become a non-factor in 2020. Now, there we disagree. No, and I actually agree with that. If you actually look at the numbers, Texas in both 2016 and 2018 is more of a swing state than Ohio. So if you're a national national party director or presidential candidate in 2020 with limited resources, where are you going to spend those dollars? It's a fair question to ask. Um, I think that it's hopefully we could turn the tide and Ohio would be competitive swing state in 2020. But if I'm looking at the map, I I don't know. I would not invest the money here. There'd be other states where I would take my money on a national level to get more bang for my buck. Texas, Texas may go, go slightly purple, but it won't go purple yet. unless, you know, I just don't see it. Um, Florida and Ohio, I still, don't, I still don't think you are going to make it to the White House without winning it. Um, I think Pennsylvania is going to be in play a little bit more than it has been in the past because of the 16 election. I think Michigan is going to be in play because it all goes back to voter turnout. And we're going to have to deal with who is going to be on the other side. Um, we know that the urban areas of those states did not show up in 2016. Had they shown up in full force as they did for President Obama, we would not be having President Trump as president. Now it depends on who's going to be the Democrat nominee, and then it also has the Kasich factor. Is he going to run as a Republican or as an independent, and how would that mix up the case or the outlying areas? Because that's going to change the game also. And so there are going to be some dynamics that are going to go into 20 that's going to change some things. But overall, Ohio, Michigan, Ohio, Wisconsin, those states right there, if you look at the urban turnout in those major cities, they did not come out in 16, and that's what caused the election. Yeah, but if you also look at electoral college points, though, you could swap Arizona for Ohio right now, and the, the Democratic senator won in, in Arizona. So what I'm saying is I'm not, I don't want, let me be clear, I don't think that Ohio is not going to be looked at, is not going to be campaign stops, but I certainly think national party priorities could look at states they've never looked at before instead of just having that big focus on, I mean, Ohio has had in 20, 
2008-2012 more presidential visits than any other state in both those cycles. I don't think that in 2020 Ohio will have more presidential visits than any other states. That's the point I'm trying to make. Tracy did touch on something that I, I wanted to talk a little bit about, which is General Motors, which is a big issue right now, especially in this region. Um, you know, last year, President Trump came to this region and, and told Lordstown workers not to sell your homes. The jobs are coming back. Well, now with the Chevy Cruze ending production there early next year, how much do you think that will play into what happens here locally, statewide, nationally, as we head into 2020, because a lot of those workers and people in this region voted for Donald Trump uh, based on some of those promises. I'll start. Um, okay. From what I see and, and, and from the Trump voter here locally, those diehard Trump crossover votes, they're still there. Um, he walks on water, and it is, is what it is. Um, when you, I don't, I, I can't comprehend it, I can't understand it, and I can't give you a rationale for it, but he still walks on water in Mahoning Valley, even with the loss of General Motors. Well, I think that that's starting to change, and I think we're seeing it on the margins that Trump voters are beginning to see that they've been sold a bill, one, they've been sold a bill of goods, and two, that their candidate is in absolute legal danger with regard to the Mueller probe and to the Southern District of New York. We're starting, I'm not saying it's a huge swing, I'm saying that they are starting to edge off, they're starting to see it. And what you have to remember historically is that before Nixon was impeached, he enjoyed relatively good poll numbers. It was only after the message started to trickle out that he had been involved in criminal activity Let me say this. that the population moved to the place that we could impeach a president. Just a caveat. Let me okay. say it as a caveat, because I've been a Republican, and I have sat in a room like this by myself waiting for candidates to come in because I couldn't get volunteers. Right now, that may be true overall from what we see, but if anything goes by the, 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 the momentum that I have from the Trump volunteers that are still sitting in my Republican headquarters in both Trumbull and Mahoning County, that is so far from the reality of it because we can't get those people to go home. They are still there. They are still motivated, and they're still partying hard. And they are, they, they are off the cliff. I've never seen anything like it in my tenure as a, in politics. Those Trump voters are still motivated. And when you have that kind of motivation and that type of inertia, it causes to swell. Now, don't get me wrong. He may lose some, but it's still amazing politically. It's a phenomenon. Kristen? Well, to, to, to sort of swing back to your original question about General Motors, look, the complexity of, of politics is elections are a snapshot in time. So the variables of 2020, we don't know who the Democratic candidate's going to be yet. We're not even close to having an inkling of, of who that's going to be. We don't know who's going to be on the ticket. You know, how much does the dynamic of Ohio change if, Sher if Senator Sher Brown's on the ticket, whether he's at the top or uh, as a VP? I'm not going to argue the merits of of that possibility right now, but I think what you, I've been curious if the General Motors uh, closing of Lordstown announcement was six weeks prior to the election in 2018. Um, I think you could you could maybe make an argument that I don't think it changes changes maybe any of the races, but it certainly would have been an interesting dynamic to see if that would have to had any effect on putting Richard Cordray potentially over the top, because that, that race was 
pretty wide margin percentage-wise in terms of I don't think the announcement would make a difference. But I, would, I, mean, I have been interested in that question. Does, any, but does Trump's approval in Ohio change? Does he come and campaign differently in Ohio? Have, is that announcement come six weeks earlier? I mean, we don't know. We don't have enough data yet to determine how that's going to affect people. I, I do feel what, what, what Kim feels in terms of I'm starting to, you know, Tracy's speaking to the, the heart of the heart of the base, the, the largest activists, right? But presidential elections are one on margins and independence. It, are enough independents starting to trickle off from Trump's support? I, I mean, I, I don't know if that's the case in Ohio, but we're certainly starting to see the data in places like Miss Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. So it, it'll be interesting to me to what that's going to mean to the Valley. I mean, if people are out of work and they're going to the ballot box in 2020 for somebody to blame, and the messaging is that Trump is to blame for this economic downturn, does that peel off independence and people from 2016? I think the answer will be yes. But again, I don't know who's going to be delivering that message on the Democratic side and to what's, you know, what stake they make for Ohio either. You know, yes, that's an important issue here, but it's not, maybe not going to be the same thing that trends in other states. So I think the jury is still out on that, what kind of effect it's going to have in, in my perspective. And it depends on where the economy is, because if the rates still go up, and, the, and we go into a recession, then it'll change the whole dynamic on 2020, right. no matter what. Exactly. Okay. Today, we are discussing the impact of the 2018 elections on Ohio and the nation. And joining me on stage are attorney Kim Atkins, Kristen Olme, managing member of KO Consulting LLC and president of the League of Women Voters of Greater Youngstown, and Tracy Winbush, host and CEO of Opsy Media Incorporated. So I would like to open it up to audience questions, um, city club members, guest students, or those of you who are joining us elsewhere. And uh, if you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet it at CityClubMV. And we'll try to work it in. Go ahead. Yes. Uh, first of all, I'd like to thank you for an excellent discussion. I thought the way you all interacted with each other was absolutely inspiring. You're all intelligent people, and that showed very prominently. I commend you. Uh, sec I wanted to ask you, how much do you think immigration is going to play into it in the future? Is that really a priority from what you've seen of the statistics for most people, or is it just something, well, like we focus on the economy, immigration just might be a side thing? Well, we've kicked cleaning up our immigration policy down the road for a very long time. Uh, in terms of the legislative priorities, we, we're starting to see from Nancy Pelosi, immigration is like number two or number three on the list to actually clean it up. The problems that we've had in this administration clearly need to be addressed. I don't know whether for states like Ohio that's a priority, but certainly the states on the border. But in general, people have looked at the treatment that has gone on under this administration with regard to immigrants coming into this country, and I don't believe we're happy. We had a turnout at a rally about the separation policy that stunned stunned the organizers in that people are very disturbed by this idea that we're going to treat people in a way that dehumanizes them. And I think if it's told to the population that way, 
that you have to look at how we're going to treat people that come to this country. I think that's a selling point for the Democrats. Kristen? Well, I certainly think it's going to be a viable issue in the sense that if you watched any news last night, the Oval Office meeting discussed the potential shutdown of the government over funding for the border wall between President Trump and uh, leaders uh, Schumer and Pelosi. I think that, you know, so you can answer this question. I can answer this question cynically. So what does it mean for policy versus what does it mean for political optics? I certainly think you probably have enough votes coming out of the House to pass some type of immigration reform bill, whether that just includes security, whether that just include, that includes some funding, uh, what that looks like, what that looks like for the immigration process and changing you know, the court system process. You certainly could probably get a bill out of the House. So what does that mean for this, out of the, the Senate? Um, what type of, what positions are the senators up in 2020 going to be willing to stake on uh, voting on an immigration bill one way or the other? I, I don't think there's any way, that, way shape, or form you're going to get around that that's going to probably be a 2020 presidential issue. I, you know, we are, uh, politics moves at lightning speed. We're literally a year and a half out from the 2020 elections. You're going to see campaigns wrap, ramp up within the next three three to four months, start to hear announcements and launches and then fundraising and we're off to the races. So I certainly think that there's going to have to be a, a some type of, at least within the first three to six months, that's the only time frame we're going to have for any type of comprehensive legislation to be passed. Now, is the House going to pass something knowing full well that it's going to have to make some senators, potentially some senators that are running for president, decide to uh, on an up-down vote? I don't know. I, I certainly think there's, gonna, there's votes and interests out of the House. Certainly the president wants to include border, quote-unquote, border security in, uh, in a, any type of funding package. So I don't think there's any way we're going to get around at least the issue being salient in 2020. What that means for Ohio um, will be sort of left. I, I, I don't think it's as, as much of a issue in Ohio with border secu- where border security is concerned, but we did have, a, a, I think uh, Congressman Bill Johnson has made uh, immigration you know, an issue because there's been some plants and some places of employment in his district that had some folks who were essentially deported, rounded up and deported. So I, I don't think, even though Ohio's not necessarily a border state, there's certainly some interest in coming up with some type of legislative compromise or solution. It's just going to matter, is it for uh, political optics or actual policy change? Tracy? I think it's smoke and mirrors, personally. Um, they're going to be at a stalemate. Um, the president's going to flex. Uh, you saw what happened in the White House on yesterday. We're going to see a lot of good optics, got a lot of good, interesting um, television and news. But are they going to agree with the House and the Senate? I don't think they will. I think going to split it down the middle. We're going to watch a lot of great, um, you know, spoofs on SNL. And we're going to call it a day, and it's going to go into 2020, and they're going to kick the can down the road some more because they don't want to honestly sit down and have open, honest conversation about immigration reform, which needs to be done at the heart of it from the beginning to the end. And nobody wants to touch that monkey because we have gotten to the place where we're into partisanship and we cannot agree. And as long as we stay divided, we will always be where we are. We have another question. Um, how much do you think voter suppression has affected this past election overall? Oh, please let me answer that. 
I think we'll all get a chance to answer it. Listen, you'd like to go first. Listen, voter suppression, I I love the question if it was suppressed, but you can't suppress a vote when people don't come vote. In Ohio, I'm on the Board of Elections here in Mahoning County. You have 28 days to vote. You can vote by mail. You can vote by snail. You can walk in. You can knock on the door, and they'll come to you, and you you can go to the polls on Election Day. Our problem is getting people motivated to vote and taking the taking the politics out the news and letting them just report it and letting people make decisions on their own and taking out the outside dynamics. Um, We are going to have to focus on the American electorate, not suppression. It's not suppressed. People can vote in Ohio. You can be, as long as you're walking, you can vote. So you can't go by, well, we we don't have felony convictions where you cannot vote. If you're out, if you're walking, you can vote. Right now, we've got to get people motivated to be involved in their civic system so that they can vote. But in 2018, there was no suppression here in Ohio. Now, other other places I can't speak to, but I know in Ohio, if you want to vote, we will do whatever it means to vote. We will walk your ballot to the car. Uh, as someone who worked the polls in, well, the last time I didn't work the polls was probably 2000. I got to watch what happens in terms of being able to show up and vote. And I, there's been a shift. It, wa- it was in the past that you could walk in, you could present almost any form of ID, and you could vote. The laws have changed, and it's become much more difficult. So I watched how many provisionals we got in the precinct that I worked in, and it's not pretty. But nationally, Ohio's not as interesting to suppress as, say, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Florida, where the heart of the black vote is. If you can suppress a portion of the black vote, you can flex the election. In states like Mississippi and Alabama, you need specific ID. You can't use college ID. If your ID did not, we just had the lawsuit. If your ID did not match your signature, you couldn't vote. If you are older, and older black people vote, if you are older and you cannot produce an ID that is state-issued, and then we close the places where you can get those IDs, then you're not going to have sufficient ID to come vote. You can't get a birth certificate at, in certain, certain, certain districts in the South because those documents don't exist anymore. So we can say that Ohio doesn't have the same kinds of suppression problems, and I'd like to point out that as someone who tried to register prisoners at the Mahoning County Jail and was denied the opportunity, it's not as apparent here in Ohio how we suppress the vote as it is in the South, but there is certainly suppression. I would like to, I would definitely like to answer this because I think it's an important question and and I definitely want an opportunity to answer it. I think one of the things that becomes political is how we define voter suppression. Because I would argue we do have voter suppression in Ohio. And I'm going to go a step further and give an example. We changed the driver's license laws in the state of Ohio just this last cycle for how you come in and when you come in and do a new registration. My mother, who has been married for roughly 40 years, when she went to get a new driver's license because her driver's license expired, part of the requirement now was because, she, because her social security, her, excuse me, her birth certificate obviously doesn't match her married name, she had to produce her marriage license. 
That's very, very difficult for somebody that's, say, 78 years old and is coming in because their license is expired and their name does not match on their birth certificate, which they do still have a copy of, to go ahead and get a copy of their marriage license. Perhaps they were married in another state. For whatever reason, that becomes a barrier to entry to getting a driver's license to be able to vote. That is voter suppression. So while, we, while it's not the same as, as, as saying, okay, we're gonna, you're going to come into the polling place and we're going to turn you away, making anything harder to get a driver's license that's a necessity for registering and voting, to me, is voter suppression. We have to redefine. It's not, Tracy's right, we do have easy opportunities to vote once you, but you have. But you do not have to have a driver's license or a picture ID in the state of if, Ohio if to vote. If you vote early. No, not even if you vote early. Yeah, if you vote on no, election if, day. Even, even if you vote early, even if you vote on election day, all you have to do is have a piece of mail, no matter where it comes from, and you have to show your name and your address that you live there. And when you vote provisionally, we, we went through a lot of provisional votes, and I do understand that, but there are, there, there are the rules that are part of the the legislature, we went through every last provisional vote, and I do not have the statistics on how many got counted, but most of them did. But we do have to verify that you are who you are. We send out multiple notifications, and once you do do fill out a provisional packet, you are automatically registered to vote that day. So when you come in the next time, you're already ready. But we have to make sure that you're not coming from Pennsylvania into Ohio, not switching precincts, not changing your, 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 your address, making sure that you're in the right places, that we do not have a uh, a disorganized election as, as far as outcome. And because th- some of these, I mean, some of we had some votes that were very, very narrow. We're talking about three, three or four, five, you know, 500 votes maybe in here. Those make differences. And we were concerned that we were going to have to have them um, recounted or they were going to change from election night from our official night into our canvassing. We make sure that those votes get counted, and we stand there, and we actually go over every provisional ballot, even down to watching the, the signatures on the bottom line to see if they match. And that may occur once it gets to you, but I, to finish my story, when my mom went to her polling location in 2018 in Struthers and didn't have matched documents, they asked for her driver's license there. So if they're not supposed to be doing that, then they're, then they're in the wrong. And, and she had to produce both forms to show she still was who she was. So if that's a policy level th- in thing that's going wrong at the precinct level, I'm telling you to finish my story, that occurred on election day. So that might not get to you and the results when you're counting and matching provisionals, but that still occurs at polling locations. I know it because I've witnessed it. So I would say that there's still elements of voter suppression, back to my original point. Okay, let's get to another question. Okay, this is a different kind of question. So a little bit of background, I grew up in Northeast Ohio. I left for most of my adult life, lived in both Texas and California, and now I'm back. Um, So Texas and California are two states that are pretty, they have flamboyant personalities, and they have a very defined ideological bent. Um, And the perception of my friends in both Texas and California is that Ohio doesn't have a strong personality. It doesn't have a defined ideological bent. And so it's a place where you come and you can campaign either on the economy or with the strong personality. So do you think that there is a a strong ideological personality here that is not obvious to outsiders or it's not as flamboyant or that this is a place where you come and you campaign on economics or strong personality because it, it's, there isn't a very strong ideological 
leaning here either way? I think that Ohio is amazing because Ohio is so diverse. When you think about getting in your car, it, you could, it takes six hours to go from Youngstown to Cincinnati. You could make that drive six hours and be on the East Coast and have your toes dipped in the sand. So the diversity of Ohio, the five Ohios, there was a great, during my undergraduate uh, work at uh, the University of Akron, there's this great book out of the Bliss Institute called The Battle for the Five Ohios, Columbus, Cincinnati, Toledo, Cleveland, and then Appalachian region. And just Ohio is so diverse to campaign in, that's what makes it, it doesn't have one singular personality, and that's what an issue that's salient in for Lordstown is not the same as in Cincinnati, and that's what makes it so unique, and that's why Ohio's been considered a bellwether state for so long, because the diversity within Ohio is a reflection of the diversity of the country. So that's really what I w- how I would describe what makes us unique and what makes it such a barometer for how the country feels. I think some of that stuff is starting to change, back to my original points of, of demographic shifts, but... If somebody asked me to describe Ohio, I would say Ohio, we got it all. (laughs) I agree. Hi there. Um, We didn't really touch a lot on the diversity of Congress, the the makeup now. I'd like to hear from the panelists on how you think that's going to affect the agenda going forward. Anybody want to start? Go ahead. Kim? Uh, Well, if you put up a picture of the current constituency of the Democratic Party versus the Republican Party... Uh, it's pretty stark. It's pretty stark in terms of the representation of old white men versus a party that looks more like America. Uh, it came up the other day about one race in Texas where all the judicial candidates were black women and all of them won. And so there's, there are in parts of this country a commitment to make this country look like the entire country rather than one segment. And so I'm hoping that with this energy we're seeing with Ocasio and some of the other young progressives that have gone, we're going to get some movement. We're going to get some new ideas and some flexibility. They're going to have to start looking at life as the rest of us live it, that we have a work-life balance that involves family, that we have a work-life balance that involves taking care of elders. And I think women are going to bring those kind of questions into Congress and make us deal with it. I mean, I, I, I'll be brief because I've talked a lot. Um, I think that it's wonderful. I think the diversity is going to make a, a, a just we've already, you've already seen how the agenda's changed, right? The new when you're when we're looking on the Democratic side for the battle for the Speaker of the House, you know, the new progressive group group already created. a a new caucus that's already shifting some of the things that I think are going to become Speaker Pelosi's priorities because you want to meet America where it's at. And for the longest time, we have, we do not have enough minority representation. We do not have enough women representation. And we certainly still don't. But man, is it exciting that we're getting ever more close to a diverse Congress that's reflective of, uh, of the United States. So I'm excited to see what happens and what changes are made. I'm all about diversity, and I I really appreciate it, Um, even though on my side there's very little. But I will say this, and I I don't see there's going to be too much of a change, Um, and not unless they're going to actually start doing some really hard um, shifting as far as the power structure. 
Um, Speaker Pelosi is going to toe the line. She's going to be herself. She's already cut her deals. She will put people where they want them to go. But whether she will stand behind them is going to be another thing because this is about power and it's about their agenda. And it all depends on who's in that back room. By the time that these new people find the bathroom, if they don't go, if they don't step in line, they will be out in two years and we'll find another person of color or another female to put you in. And that's just how it goes, whether we like it or not. Um, it all depends on who they're going to allow to put up front and put on the news to actually address the public because you can't be on unless they invite you. And it all makes a difference. Um, I'm hoping that it is going to um, cause some conversation and maybe it'll cause the Republican Party to think about where they're going and what they're doing. But again, I don't see a whole lot of things changing with Speaker Pelosi because she already knows where she's going before she ran. And that's why she's there. I would just disagree real quick for one second. And, no. And it, well, and it's actually, <laughs> it actually has to do with something that I'm going to credit the, the President Trump for. He, he changed the dynamic of the use of social media. And I think what you're going to see is, is younger elected members of Congress, new diverse elected members of Congress, they're not going to, they're going to, they're able to go ahead and ha put out a statement and ha and put uh, something out on Twitter or a live feed on Facebook that the, that the, the members of Congress can't, they can't control. They're, they're, they're going to get directly to the audience, directly to their constituents via Twitter or Facebook or social media. That's going to change the leadership being able to completely stranglehold that narrative. I think you already see that with the following that some of these new members have on social media. So I do think technology is going to be a catalyst to change some of the dynamics in Congress. Can I please say this? Unless that technology and that social media has dollars behind them, that war trust that Nancy Pelosi is sitting on will change because when it comes to the rubber meeting the road in two years, she will put people in that race to come against you to get what she needs to get. And either you're going to toe the line or I promise you, you will be sitting on the outside because that's just how our government works. But her number, th her number three in the House lost his primary, Joe Crawley, to Ocasio-Cortez. So we do know there's examples where young people and people who come outside can win. And I think her use of social media and building a movement was what allowed her to do that. So I agree with with your point to a certain to a certain level but I think that dynamics are going to shift as the as people utilize social media to talk directly to the voters it's one of the things that made President Trump so successful the the change in terms of message is lightning like now it the fact that you can tweet to followers and get a message out a simple message out to millions of followers in what 280 characters is a complete change from what we've been looking at in the past and one of the joys of this new diverse coalition that has come in is they understand that if you saw any of the questioning yesterday of the official from google there's a party that doesn't understand that and they're going to pay for that in elections okay we do have one more question um yeah so Shifting away from Ohio and uh, voter suppression, gerrymandering, and other sort of, I guess, would say pre-electoral tactics and interventions, I'm interested to hear all of your opinion on what's happening in Wisconsin uh, in terms of sort of the suppression of 
outcomes uh, and how that ties into getting young people excited to vote um, when you see what's occurring in the lame dog session in Wisconsin to uh, entirely shift the the impact of the outcome that the people voted for um, and uh, uh, despite the fact that it's been framed in some media as uh, something that's common I think what's actually happening is entirely unprecedented and what is that new normal look like for the future of democracy overall well it's wildly anti-democratic but it was tried in North Carolina and the judicial branch struck it down so we're hopeful that those efforts will be struck down by the judiciary in these other states what he's talking about is that the lame duck session passes statutes which limit the amount of power that say the secretary of state or the attorney general or the governor can exercise it looks pretty much like an ex post facto law and the judiciary has not been really excited about those attempts to limit the power of the incoming and different party and so we're hopeful that those will get struck down but it speaks to this notion, this undercurrent that's running through one party's politics, that if we can't win on the square, then we're going to cheat. And that's exactly what it looks like. It looks like sore loser tactics to try and take out the people that did win. So when I'm watching races, the thing that scared me the most about 45 is how many judges he put in. Because nobody kept their eye on the ball as to what happens to your court system when you put partisan hacks. We got one that went up yesterday that not only is not supposed to be there, but was deemed unqualified. That's what we've got. And so you have to keep your eye on the ball as to what anybody coming in decides to do to your judicial system because it undercuts your entire democracy. Christian? I think that obviously it's 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 clearly coming across as a power grab. I mean, that's that's what it is. It's what it's coming across as. Um, I think, you know, it's one of the complexities, too, of understanding, you know, the power of governance. And, that you know, I think there's a lot of voters, first-time voters in Wisconsin, who don't understand how something like that can occur. And, you know, what the the power of the, the state house is really like the president, the presidency and Congress is the flashy stuff. Right. But the state house is so critical to your day to day life. And there's so much power in state houses that really to sort of answer your question that Democrats have yielded for the last 30 years. We've not done a good job of building the infrastructure that builds the bench that grows, you know, into state state reps and state houses because that's where Republicans have utilized so much of their power for voter voter registration tactics, for those type of things exist at the state level. I think that it's a transparent power grab. Um, at first I thought maybe Scott Walker would veto some of that it seems now he's going he's he's come out and said he's going to you know sign that I think that it's going to ultimately end up in the courts and, and we'll, we'll see where the chips fall as they may once it reaches the court system but it it is unfortunate that the will of the people it looks like a power grab even if you I, I, I sat on and watched some of the arguments back and forth with the se senators from both parties in Wisconsin and some of them were making the argument that it wasn't really a power grab that it wasn't going to change the power of the incoming governor and 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 we could have a whole another three hours on that discussion but um 
I think it'll, it'll, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I think it's unfortunate, but it's politics today. Um, I disagree with a lot of it, and we won't go there because it'll be a, come a, become a debate. But I'll say this. Until we take civics and put it back into our schools, and until we begin to educate our electorate and make their, our nation a priority to them, we will be having these conversations and we will be playing this type of red robin, spin the bottle, whatever you might want to call it. Because right now, no matter who's in, no matter where they're going, whether it be for the judges, whether it be for the legislature and or for the administrations of Wisconsin or any other state, games are being played at all levels on both sides, depending on who wins. You know, we go after investigations and may say, well, everybody's picking on President Trump. I can guarantee you, had Hillary Clinton won, we'd be picking on Hillary Clinton. Same thing goes up in Wisconsin. When it comes to judges, President Trump has appointed his judges, and we know President Obama appointed his judges. We have this thing going on, and the American electorate is sitting on the sidelines, really not paying attention, and has been undereducated about the process. So they don't understand the school board who allows civics to be taken out that they're not going to go to, to the polls in 2019 because we're not going to be able to have the money to get them there to make the excitement for it is going to cause them the rift because our children are not going to know how the process works. And our nation is built on an educated electorate. And until we do that, we will always be having this schism between Republicans and Democrats and not just Americans. Mm -hmm. The City Club of the Mahoning Valley is presented by the Bank of America, the Nordstrom Corporation Foundation, the Raymond John Wien Foundation, the Youngstown Foundation, and Youngstown State University with additional support from the Community Foundation of Mahoning Valley and WYSU 88.5 FM. We appreciate your generous support of City Club programming. Today's forum will re-air on 88.5 FM WYSU on Thursday, December 13th at 6 p.m. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you, Ms. Aiken, Ms. Omni, Ms. Wimbush. Thank you, Ms. Rabinowitz, and thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This forum is now adjourned.